Tulsa Massacre into sharper focus and context. First, the news. On the next On Being, psychotherapist Esther Perel on erotic intelligence. How many of you go to bed and the last thing you touch is your phone? Okay, stand up, right? <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. And how many of you are doing this while there actually is another person lying next to you in bed? I'm like, seriously? I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Joe Biden has fired Social Security Commissioner Andrew Saul, but as NPR's Amy Held explains, the Trump appointee who has served two years of a six-year term says he's not going anywhere. Andrew Saul was fired Friday after refusing to resign. The White House says the 74-year-old Republican donor has had a fractious relationship with unions and politicized disability payments. But Republican lawmakers say his firing is a dangerous politicization of the agency. Saul tells the Washington Post he's showing up for work on Monday, at least logging on virtually, adding he considers himself term protected. The Supreme Court, however, has issued earlier rulings affirming presidential power to fire appointees at will. Biden has named Kilolo Kijikazi, a deputy at the agency, to serve as acting commissioner until a permanent nominee is selected. Amy Held, NPR News. A heat wave inflicting triple-digit temperatures across the western U.S. continues to fuel dry conditions ripe for yet more wildfires. In Northern California, the Beckworth Complex fire, combination of two blazes caused by lightning, has grown so quickly that a community along the border with Nevada had to be evacuated. Another wildfire burning in Oregon threatened transmission lines that sent electricity to California. Yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered an emergency suspension of rules to allow for more power capacity. The administration has added more than a dozen Chinese entities to a trade blacklist. It says they're suspected of being involved in human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang region or of having links to the Chinese military. NPR's Don Ruich has details. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the department is fully committed to taking, quote, strong, decisive action against entities involved in rights abuses in Xinjiang or using U.S. technology to help the People's Liberation Army. The Commerce Department added the companies to its so-called entity list that restricts their access to certain U.S. products. Foreign governments, journalists and rights groups say the Chinese government has been running a vast network of detainment and labor camps in Xinjiang for years, targeting mostly Muslim minorities, including the Uyghurs. The Biden administration says it amounts to genocide and crimes against humanity. Beijing denies that it's committing rights abuses in the region. John Ruich, NPR News. A crew's taken down a Confederate monument that became a rallying cry for white supremacists and led to deadly protests and counter-protests in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Here's VPM's Ben Pavier. One of the people here was uh, Ziana Bryan, and she led a petition to take these statues down in 2016 when she was a student at Charlottesville High School. She says it's important to celebrate this win, but 
the systemic work is much longer and it's going to take much more work and that's what has to come after this otherwise it's just an empty symbolic gesture that report from vpm's ben pavier this is npr news this is radio catskill i'm liam mayo from the river reporter a 17 year old resident of peekskill drowned in the upper delaware this past weekend he went missing on sunday july 4 in the water near the cedar rapids campground by berryville and his body was recovered Wednesday morning. County officials continue to urge Sullivan County residents and visitors alike to wear life jackets when they're swimming, boating, or fishing on the river. None of the five people who have drowned so far this season were wearing a properly fitted life jacket. The Sullivan County Broadband LDC is moving forward with plans to bring broadband to the county. Over the next three to five years, The LDC plans to wire each of the county's public safety towers for broadband connectivity, using secondary towers in areas of low coverage, with the ultimate goal of reaching over 95% of the county. The LDC is working on getting the Monticello Tower up and running. Once testing is complete, potentially by the end of August, Monticello residents within the tower's range may be able to purchase broadband subscriptions from the LDC. For more information, contact the LDC at... 845-807-0930. That's 845-807-0930. And the National Park Service has announced that it has executed a co-management agreement with the Greater New York Councils of the Boy Scouts of America for the river access point of the 10-mile River Scout Camp. The NPS hopes to get a kiosk in place at the access sometime this week, providing amenities such as orientation, portable toilets, and natural and cultural resource protection. This news roundup is produced in partnership with The River Reporter. I'm Liam Mayo. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. Filmmaker Dawn Porter is back here on the show with her new documentary feature, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, she unearths an unspoken history that must be remembered and never, ever forgotten. And what does it have to do with us in our time? Well, beyond the painful repetitions and parallels, here's the real question. What are we willing to know about American history, and when will we learn it? Here's Dawn Porter to tell us the story of the film. In the period between 1917 and 1921, there were more than 25 massacres of black citizens across America. Most of these events share a common origin story, an allegation of a black man assaulting, quote unquote, a white woman. Um, But more than that, it really, there are so many stories of envy that there were prosperous black people. And by prosperous, I want to be very clear that I do not mean that everyone who was attacked in Greenwood and the other cities were wealthy. What they were, were thriving on their own. They had bakeries and barber shops, and they were house cleaners and they had schools and proms and hopes and dreams and they were self-sufficient. Some of them became very wealthy but others were just living their lives in a peaceful, um, self-sufficient way. And that there was so much alarm at that, that prosperity that 
living of a calm and self-sufficient life that was not necessarily dependent on white people, that caused alarm. Excuse me, because of course it was during, just to contextualize it, when you talk about that period, it's the height of segregation, the height of Jim Crow segregation, when white people are saying in every way possible, you will not, you will only do what I tell you to do, and if you do otherwise, and so here you have these communities, as you're saying, who in the midst of that, it's also the height of the lynching era. That's right. So in the midst of that, you have these communities that are self-actualizing. They are self-actualized. And they and if you think about this period, it's, you know, 50 years after slavery. And so to have that remarkable, um, you know, kind of advancement for so many of them, um, there was a fear that that you know, kind of prosperity was going to continue and that blacks would not know their place. And so, um, you know, Regina Goodwin, who's a a descendant of a Tulsa survivor, says it very well. Um, They not only attacked the young man who was accused, but they burned 35 blocks of the all of Greenwood to the ground. And uh, the first instance of of air uh, bombings in American soil that we know of is actually in Tulsa. It is with the American government bombing its own city. That's right. Uh, with a white-led American government bombing its citizens who are black. That's right. And so you know the the horror of that that particular day and of that time is. You know, we included in the film the testimony of survivors, which, goodness gracious, we are so uh, indebted to those people who in the late 90s recorded those stories of elderly people, eyewitnesses who told of, you know, their parents making the choice to stay in a house where mobs, white mobs had set the curtains on fire and the house was burning down or to run in the street where they were subject to bombs from airplanes, burning kerosene, dropping on their their heads. Between the devil and the devil. That's right. And then after the city was, the area was completely obliterated, all 35 blocks of the Greenwood District, banks and churches and schools and homes, um, there were up to 6,000 black Americans interned in a camp. And the Red Cross was uh, called in to, to provide provisions, but the National Guard was called in, not for their safety, but to herd them and make sure that no one escaped. So you have a situation where people are brutalized and then interned. Um, and then, as if that is not enough, when the survivors itemized their losses, they'd lost everything they had everything they worked for it, they lost. Um, the insurance companies denied their claims because to your earlier point, they classified the massacre as a riot and said you were complicit in your losses and therefore we deny your claims. Yes. Which kind of reminds me then of the way that kind of complicity of the power structure is such that um, when the 
in the 1950s when Rosa Parks takes her seat and keeps her historic seat and the Montgomery bus boycott begins. Insurance companies dis- denied insurance to the car, to, to anybody who had a car so that you would not be able to drive in or carpool uh, to in defiance of the bus boycott. That's the level of insidiousness. I don't think most Americans understand how white supremacy has actually worked. They have been told we're superior. They have been told um, the whole world needs us to survive. But they have not been told how that was enforced. And, you know, understanding each of the components that perpetrate the myth of white supremacy, that to me is the important education that has to happen. You can't dismantling it by saying it, that's not true. You have to attack each of the component parts you know, and and so that is part of I think what we were attempting to do with this film, and in that vein, the contextualizing saying Tulsa was not a one-time occurrence, but there was a lane Arkansas, there was Washington D.C., there was Chicago, Illinois, where a boy, missed, black boy, mistakenly drifted into the white section of the pool, which led to a vicious massacre. Um, so, um, getting out of place was deadly, not only for you, but for the entire community. Out of place. Um, just going back to the core of this film, I am in awe of how it was done. And I'll tell you how it really struck me. Having seen all of those documents over the years, all of those still photos is the way you brought them to life. It was as though I was seeing the people of Tulsa 1919 or 19, yeah, 1919 to 1920 before the ultimate massacre, the ultimate decimation. Um, It's as though I'm seeing them walking around in their neighborhood saying, hi, I'm Mr. So-and-so tipping his hat to somebody. How did you do that? <laughs> um, you, you know, we thought as a, a creative exercise that it was really important to celebrate life. And, you know, as a storytelling device, um, you can't feel loss until you've experienced the fullness of life. And so, you know, these people had to become real. They had to look like your grandmother and my grandmother. And they weren't necessarily doing remarkable things. They were raising their children and working their land or working in stores. They were just living. And that fact of just living was enough to provoke terror um, in the white counterparts. People, black people were were too happy. <laughs> and that was coming out of place. You know, and the other, the the, the history is is really really important. Um, 
there's a combination of factors. You had black soldiers returning from World War One. My grandfather, my great grandfather, was one of those soldiers who had seen freedom and been treated well in Europe, and they were not willing to to you know subject themselves to the same kinds of discrimination. You have the rise of the NAACP. You have um, you know so all of these things are terrifying. Uh, you had the, you had a pandemic. So people had, you know, all people had suffered terrible losses. And so the signs for Tulsa were there. They were there in the massacres that were occurring in other places across the country. But, you know, two years before the Klan marched um, in, you know, in Tulsa, in Greenwood, um, signifying, you know, their presence and their strength. And Black Tulsans took notice, um, you know, they knew trouble was coming. Um, and they did their best to resist it. And in that film, you raise the point that not only did those Klansmen march, but the um, Confederate veterans came through and told the white people, how could you let black people- How could you let this happen? <laughs> become so successful. Yeah. So for anybody today who wants to pretend as to what the Civil War was about and what they were fighting for and the way of life, their way of life was the oppression of Black people. And they say so. Mm -hmm. They say so. Mm -hmm. um, Don, when I watched the film, my first question was, where does this film begin for you? But... When I thought about the film and what I had seen, it felt so personal that I wanted to say, where does the need to do this film begin for you? The film really begins for me today. You know, um, when we started making this, it was just after George Floyd was so brutally murdered um, it was uh, when, you know, personally, I felt like I was reckoning with the contemporary brutality of the state um, and of people in power. And um, so it felt like something I needed to do. Um, so National Geographic came to me, you know, we didn't have a lot of time. <laughs> they came to me in last spring and you know said they wanted to do something you know uh around the tulsa massacre but they also they were already working with Deneen. and because we didn't have a lot of time they recommended that um i speak to Deneen as an expert and you know she was writing a very long piece for national geographic magazine um she had been doing so much reporting for the post so it was such a quick start into the history. Um, and then when I met her, it was so personal for her. Um, I have a deep love of journalism, of black journalists, of the black press, and seeing how she was able to combine her professionalism and all of her skill with that personal um, spin I felt like that was such a unique story. And and the thing that really did grab me, I, I had um, a familiarity with the Tulsa story 
because I had done four short films for the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture about six or seven years ago. So I had seen the Tulsa footage and knew something about that story, but I wasn't familiar with the entire Red Summer. And so that's, you know, Deneen really brought that context in and it seemed to me to be so critical. And as I could see the the coverage of the 100th anniversary of the massacre shaping up, I thought people think this is a one-off, that it's an anomaly, and it's not. It's part of a reign of terror that extended through years. So that was how we approached it, and then I asked her to be on camera. She wasn't supposed to be on camera. I asked her to do it, um, and she just you know, dove right in. And so we really um, were partners in in this project. And I am so in awe of her skills and her, she brought a light to such a heavy subject because of the way that her reporting is so beautiful. It makes you confront the truth. When you say her reporting is beautiful, an example of what you mean. Deneen was able to elegantly, calmly, and with um, the precision of a surgeon, (laughs) pull together facts, documents, go to the sources. It really was an exhibit. You know, I worked at ABC News. I did network standards. I worked with a lot of reporters. I know how stories are put together. And to me, her process was so important because we are living in an age where people question the facts before their eyes, it felt like we really needed to see her go to the very beginning and go visit the archivist and see those pictures. We needed her to go stand in that field, literally where the bodies are buried. And we needed her to be at the excavation. And she was very willing to do all of those things and to open up her process Um, for examination, for reflection, um, and for understanding. And so to me, that is just a very elegant way that she has about her work. This is the story that I wrote in 2018 about Tulsa. The headline says, Amid gentrification, a race massacre still haunts Tulsa. And the story really questions um, why an investigation that was opened in 1998 was closed without physically digging for mass graves. As a writer, there comes a certain point in the research when you really understand the story at a profound level. The story about the Tulsa Race Massacre goes to the top of the list of the stories that I've written in my career at The Post. And I feel that I was part of that process of helping to uncover a piece of the truth of what happened in the massacre. Deneen, as passionate as she is about the story and the subject and the reporting and the process, she's not lost her love of this country, of her pride of being from Oklahoma, or her love of reporting. Um, she's still excited about new discoveries. And so I thought all of that was was also part of the story, is you, you could not rob her of her joy, even oh. in reporting 
this terrible occurrence. You know, that is so interesting when you say you could not rob her of her joy. I think there's another strength that Deneen brings to this is how she has navigated through journalism as an industry. Well, that's uh, deeply correct. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, and, and, and to some extent, this is to the current management of the post credit is they do not shy away. Her editor encouraged her to report this story mm-hmm. and included in our film is the story of the Washington Post and its complicity in the massacre in in printing yellow journalism and printing false headlines and hysterical headlines that led to the murder and execution of black people. Um, her paper, the paper she loves that she has been in for more than two decades was complicit in that. Um, and, and so it is knowing that history, it is no small issue of import that she is the person to tell the actual truth about the story to right the wrongs of the paper. I I think she does the paper an incredible justice by allowing them to repent in the form of accuracy and truth in journalism. But there's one other thing I wanted to address that I I really, um, really resonates with me, which is the reason we called it Rise is because this is not only a story of murder and massacre and violence, but it is also a story of rebirth, of rebuilding, of refusing to uh, be dominated, even in the face of the most egregious violence. And so one of the joys that we both had in making this film was unearthing these beautiful portraits of of Black people. I, I particularly love the portraits of the soldiers with his daughter. Yes. Um, seeing that those loving people, seeing those strong, proud people um, defend themselves to the best of their ability. And so, you know, one of, there were so many things that were revelatory to me about this. One is that resistance. Um, and, and I think the resistance story, to the extent that people know about it at all, there's not a lot that I've seen about the resistance in every single um, massacre situation, there was a strong black resistance. Um, and I think that that's an important story to tell as well. More here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dawn Porter, writer, director, producer of the film Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. More after the break. This week on This American Life, Shmilo was 12 when she was taken captive by members of her own family that kept her for years. And her one refuge was this book, the only book she had, that she kept in secret. It was the novel Little Women. Written in 1868, it seemed to have all kinds of parallels and lessons for her exact situation, where she was being told to be a certain kind of girl. That's this week. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. This music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to share this with you. I'm Aaron Bendich, and I play a selection of Jewish recordings on Borscht Beat on Radio Catskill. Sunday afternoon at 1. 
we're back with our guest, Dawn Porter. She is the filmmaker behind the new film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. They got word that trouble was coming. The white folks are killing the color. Barbaric violence was committed against black people across this country. Kerosene was dropped from an airplane. Why did nobody ever teach us this? Because they didn't want you to know. When it was an opportunity to wipe out a community, they took it. I cannot imagine that there are mass graves somewhere in our community and we didn't try to find them. They're buried somewhere. And the question is where? We have encountered human remains. It was like they had found people who had been disappeared by history. The earth had unleashed the truth. We view this as a murder investigation. I'm gonna raise my voice. Some people say that city officials orchestrated a cover-up. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a chapter in a book. It happened to real people. They burned the whole town down. But it will rise again. Don, when you and I first met, you had just done John Lewis, Good Trouble. Just an amazing not only tribute to him, but tribute to the timing that you were able to do that film when you were able to do it. But the timing of that film and the timing of this film tells us something really frightful about where this country is right now. How do you see the significance, the the trajectory of this storytelling that you've been doing for this time? I feel like these projects all speak to each other. Um, That, you know, when we watch Congressman Lewis at 19 marching for voting rights, and then we see him in 2019, introducing HR1 to protect voting rights again. So, you know, for 60 years of his life, he was a champion of the vote for all people. And that's, and that's significant. It's for all people. (laughs) It just includes black people, but it's for all people. Um, When we understand the Red Summer story, we understand that the idea of power Excuse me, just to clarify, for those who don't know, the Red Summer story is the story of the Red Summer of 1919 in which massacres of Black people by whites took place all across this country. More than 25 cities. More than 25 cities. So to your point on the significance of the Red Summer. What the Red Summer demonstrates is a backlash against progress a backlash against progress that was frightening to white people. And when we look at the attacks on voting rights, um, it seems to me that there is a similarity. There is an attack on progress. There is both an effort to uh, bury this history 
to not teach it in schools. The Red Summer was not covered in most textbooks. It is not, the Tulsa Massacre is not covered in textbooks. Tulsans didn't know of this, um, white and black Tulsans, except for the families. And, you know, as they would say, would whisper, don't go over there. That's where so-and-so disappeared. That's where so-and-so was killed, you know, in, in the terrible times. Um, so we see now with this attack on race theory being taught in schools and attack on truth and history, um, we see this backlash against exercise of rights. Um, the, the history is not exactly the same, but the motivations are coming from the same place. And I think that um, it's important that people who are in favor of equality are very aware of this pattern and are on extra high alert um, yes. that if we want to protect, protect what we've gained, um, then we need to see this pattern and call it out. What are you getting from African-American people in terms of the response to the films that you're doing? I know that a lot of non-African-Americans and non-Indigenous people, because if anybody knows about massacres, it's, it's Indigenous people, um, but they are basically surprised. I don't think most Black people are surprised. They may not have known about the one in their town, but they but they're not surprised. What are you getting from Black people? You know, I have noticed there's almost a sense of relief from Black people that we knew this, we thought this to be the case, um, but it wasn't in our books. It wasn't in, you know, any schools that we attended. It wasn't uh, discussed. Um, I think a lot of white people feel shame. Um, they want us to move on. You know, my response is we just started discussing it. <laughs> you want us to move on already? And, you know, and so my response to that is um, people should feel shame. It is shameful. And uh, they should be determined not to participate. You know, people white people have said, well, I didn't drop bombs. I didn't enslave people, you know, to which my response is, did your parents live in housing that was not open to people of color? Did you inherit that home? Do you therefore not you have more family wealth so you don't have to take as many student loans? Do you, are you therefore have job opportunities that and choices that that you don't have if you're burdened by debt? Um, did your parents go to a college that didn't, that only allowed a certain number, if any, black people? So did you now, are you now a legacy? And so you can get into those, those schools that then perpetuates that caste system, as Isabel Wilkerson beautifully says. So you don't have to drop the bomb to benefit from its effects, from the effects of terror. And I, I think what Deneen is pointing out with her work, what so many other artists and writers are pointing out is um, if you don't acknowledge the benefits that you've received from this reign of terror, um, then you are, are actively complicit um, in the wrongs. 
the conflict in people's minds, in the white power structure's mind, is in the mayor of Tulsa. I heard it there. After all these years of denial, 21 years of denial since the commission of 1999 closed the books on the 1999 investigative commission study without actually going in search of the mass graves that were reported. He, 21 years later, has started the excavation and it is so beautiful that you begin the film with the backhoe, (laughs) you know, just that that's what this is about. It's about digging. But on the other hand, when they ask this mayor who is finally doing the digging and the results are finally coming through, when they ask him then about reparations for these Black families, he goes into that point you just made. Well, we didn't do it now. You know, it, it is so profound an embodiment of this conflict. He is now standing as a blockade against those families still getting anything. My understanding is that $30 million was raised for the Tulsa 2021 commemoration, not $1 of which went to any of those families. Yeah, there is a a very, um, Tulsa today is quite a fractured community. the the attention is welcome but the scars are deep um and uh there is there's quite a bit of work to do there i I do think um i think we can hold two ideas in our minds at once that the tulsa mayor has done a good thing in pushing forth the, the digging um but I do think it's exactly right that when I asked about reparations, that was a bridge too far for him. And I, I think that that's the reckoning that needs to happen. Why is it that black people who had itemized lists of their losses that were denied by insurance, who were interned in camps, any other ethnic minority group that was interned in camps is receiving reparations? Are we only three fifths of a people? So we, we're still three fifths? So those people don't get reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that question is not going to go away. Um, the pressure for that is not going to stop. And so, you know, I think we will all watch with interest what happens in Tulsa. Um, they recently resumed the digging uh, in June 1st and found another 28 coffins, um, which exactly matched the archaeologist's uh, prediction that there were 33 coffins in that mass grave. And so the next step is to exhume those bodies and to test for uh, uh, evidence of burns and violence um, to determine the manner of death. And so that is going to, that effort is going to keep happening. The truth, you know, as Deneen said, the earth is revealing the truth those mass graves and the coffins, you also have a scene with a man who talks about how he was seeing crates with multiple bodies being put into that those crates. So does that mean 
33 coffins or 28 coffins doesn't necessarily mean just 28 bodies, does it? Right. That's exactly right. This is really um, the beginning of this effort. And so uh, this, this story is going to play out for a long time, which, you know, if you're the mayor of Tulsa, you might want to consider reparations because the conversation will keep continuing. Um, so, um, you know, this is a story uh, for someone to pick up. There's more to tell. There's more to tell. More to tell about you. When we last spoke, you were telling me that you are of the family, the descendant family of Paul Robeson. Thinking about this magnificent man, and not just because of his amazing career, but I think the thing that always impressed me most about him, Paul Robeson singer, Paul Robeson actor, Paul Robeson activist, and public intellectual. Um, I may be paraphrasing, but he made the statement that he would not go anywhere as Paul Robeson, that he could not go as a Black man. Yeah, you know, um, that history is really important to my family. It's really important to Black people. Um, My um, great-grandfather, his brother Ben, uh, was a pastor at Mother A.M.E. Zion Church in Harlem in New York City and uh, wrote beautiful sermons, and we have copies of them. And he talks about his brother um, using his celebrity to open doors for others, to call attention to wrongs. And so there's a, a long history of the, the Black activist celebrity that I'm so encouraged to see so many other Black celebrities follow today and yet um i i have some empathy for we don't really have a choice um you know what would a life be if we if there were no discrimination and we could just pursue art um i willingly am engaging in these conversations and so many other Black artists are willingly engaging in them. But I do have empathy for those who would love to be free of the burden of um, of always excavating. And so I have a lot of admiration for musicians and artists who willingly enter these, these conversations. But I do think about one of the things that I love um, the most about the Robeson story is he refused to be put into any one box. He refused to be only thought of as a gifted athlete or a Phi Beta Kappa scholar or an award-winning actor or a wonderful musician. He was all of those things. He was all of those things. And uh, he was pursuing a life and exploring all of those talents. And I just think what a remarkable, what a remarkable person to not only have them, but to explore all of them. And even to the point of the massacre, your latest film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, even to that point, he was almost massacred at Peekskill. That's right. A concert, a mob um, attacked him and it was a very dangerous situation. And he was attacked for speaking out and speaking truths 
um, and refusing to to step into a subservient role that you know white America would want for a dark-skinned black man. He paid a terrible price for his activism in that he was stripped of everything, including his passport, so he couldn't earn a living. And somewhere in Rise Again is the statement, I think it is Deneen or one of the women in the film who says that it isn't about a physical massacre, but sometimes it's the massacre of the spirit. Spirit, yeah. You know, there's um, uh, Uncle Paul, as as he's referred to in my family, um, lived his last days um, uh, really secluded in a refuse. And actually, one of the last pictures taken of him is when my mother brought me to meet him. Um, And, uh, you know, he came out that day. Um, So when you um, are such a vibrant person and you are put yourself out into the public so wholly um having his passport revoked um ha- you know he just was mentally broken um and you know that is uh is a tragedy um it is a tragedy but uh i think we all tend to focus on him at the height of his uh fame and power um, because, uh, I can't say this for sure, but I don't think he would change his life because he had so many remarkable achievements. And um, I agree with you because if you think of the turning points, I don't know it the way you know it. I don't know it as intimately as your family knows it. But when I think of some of the turning points, if he had wanted to change his life he could have done so by acquiescing so he would have still been changing his life it's almost back to your comment about the choice that those people made do they stay in their homes where people have just set their curtains on fire and are burning down their house or do they go into the street where they are likely to be gunned down or bombed from above. That was the choice that he had. Either way, his life was going to change. And, you know, and so I think his legacy lives in those many, many accomplishments. And it has been um, wonderful to see so many people discover, rediscover the ropes and legacy. Um, So, um, you know, he's part of everyone's history. He's part of mine. I, um, when I first started as a reporter at NPR, I was asked, I was their first arts reporter, and I was asked, what interview would you want to do? And I said, I wanted to interview Paul Robeson. And as it happened, um, I didn't. But the very first story I covered was his funeral. Mm. I was at that funeral. So. <laughs> So we have met. (laughs) Um, How does all of this come to you? This story of the artist, this story of the choices that artists make, how does it come to you when we look at the films that you have done, at the work that you've done? It can be so challenging to make this work that um, it's a challenge I welcome. Um, that 
I have to be really ready to take on the subject, you know, wholly. You have to experience the pain as well as the joy. And so, you know, in making choices, I try and choose things that wholly occupy my curiosity. And so, and where there are layers to explore. And so, you know, with this story, I think you're exactly right that the framing, it was important that the framing be from the perspective of Black people and not so that there was both joy and optimism and a sense of accomplishment. Um, the a discovery for me that Black people were targeted because of their success. We are not often framed as such a successful people that we are a threat. And so I see echoes of that in Simone Biles. She's too good. Couldn't she just take a little something off of it? You know, we're too good. Um, and, and those are important lessons to learn. Do not let anyone tell you to dim your lights because that is, that is a way of perpetuating uh, your, the idea that you are inferior. Do not allow anyone to tell you to dim your light. Wow, I love that. As we go to break, let's listen to this clip from Reverend Dr. Robert Turner, and perhaps you can set it up. The Reverend Dr. Turner is a remarkable person. He moved to Tulsa. He's not a native person in Tulsa. And as he described it, he thought he was going to be your classic minister. He was going to kiss babies and do weddings and funerals and Bible study and just live a very fulfilled, but, you know, a life that was um, seeking to tend to the needs of his parishioners. And what he found was such a remarkable history that it literally, I think, seized his imagination as well as his soul. And he began having, um, he does a march to town hall where he um, calls for reparations and he calls for them very specifically um, and with an urgency. Um, he has a tie to Deneen in our story. He, at, at a, a public hearing, um, he literally held up Deneen's story to the mayor and said, what are you going to do about this? I read this article. What are you going to do about this? And that was the first time that the mayor announced, it was not on the agenda of that meeting, it was the first time he announced that Tulsa was going to resume the excavation of for and search for those bodies. So um, he has been uh, an activist leader in the community, and that has been the way that he has served his people. Black people armed with their faith and ambition built the most prosperous place not just for black people, but for any people in this country. And what did this racist white community of Tulsa do in response? They burned it to the ground. So every Wednesday, I go to City Hall. Um, and I tell them about the people that were killed. And I tell them about the homes that were bombed and burned and the people that were looted and the bodies that were dumped in the mass graves. Um, I tell them that. And I call out the city of Tulsa. This city of Tulsa 
pay reparations to those that they killed. This city and her law enforcement officer, the district attorney, has never filed charges on those who committed acts of mass terror. Black lives have never mattered in this city. Black lives have never mattered in this country. When we come back, more with our guest, Dawn Porter. She is the filmmaker behind the new film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. More after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're celebrating Greek flavors with Diane Kachilis, who schools us on Greek regional cooking, we hear about the best Greek wines to try with Tara Q. Thomas and more fun under the Mediterranean sun. That's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dawn Porter. She was our guest previously, speaking about her film, John Lewis, Good Trouble. Now she's back with Rise Again, Tulsa, and The Red Summer. Dawn, ultimately, where do we go from here on that film? What would you like to see for this film? I would like people to uh, watch with family and friends um and and have conversations and i hope that people will um engage in the sometimes painful conversation about how this history has affected them and so rather than turn away from it i would hope people would lean into it we worked really hard to make this a cinematic experience it is wonderfully cinematic yes and with music and art um, so that it could be visually stimulating and, and trigger different thoughts. Um, but I, I, there, there are a, a number of really fine films about Tulsa. Um, I'd also encourage people to, to see more than one. You know, there's, there are, this is such an important story. It's so important that we look at it from as many different vantage points as possible. And so, you know, I kind of stand together with my fellow filmmakers and say, you know, enjoy us all. Enjoy <laughs> I, us all. But I think what's extraordinary about your film is the con- is the fact that it puts it into context, that it also refers to this larger, horrific canvas that Tulsa is in step with, um, which is the caution for today. We are seeing so much today that is not just hearkening back, but is echoing, is reflecting, is repeating what has happened before. As you mentioned, the pattern of it, right down to January 6th, what are those people so hysterical about? 
they are being told that black people have manipulated the vote, which we did not. They are being told that black people somehow changed all the votes that would have been for Trump, but left the votes for the other Republicans. None of that happened, but that is what has inflamed them. Once again, it is America's racial pathology and its racial... It's attempt at racial amnesia. And, And and so that is why this film circulating on National Geographic, it means it is not just an American audience, but it is in 72 countries, this film. It is circulated around the world. So if we will not deal with our history, um, the world will hold us accountable. And if we seek to have a legitimate place in world human rights, then we must deal with our history at home. So um, I, I do, I expect um, that uh, this will continue the conversation of that reckoning. We see the country going through this anti-racism movement where black and white people took to the streets shouting the slogan, Black Lives Matter, and demanding to be heard. But we are the descendants of a people that endured these atrocities out of this past of enslavement. Jim Crow, the 40s and 50s and 60s, our people are still standing and they're still fighting. Our people have not been defeated. Dawn, thank you for bringing us just a way to see ourselves in such in such a generous way. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate it. My thanks to Dawn Porter and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to Dawn Porter's films and more, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Never Sink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com. And from listeners like you. One lingering aftermath of the pandemic is that as bars and restaurants close down, America got its drunk on. Coming up, we're going to talk about the booze boom. Instead of going out to the bars until like 2 in the morning, I'll just drink every night at my house. Doctors calling it alarming. The uniquely American relationship to the sauce on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Radio Catskill. 
You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania, on air at 90.5 FM, streaming online at wjffradio.org. Listen to us on your smartphone. Just download the WJFF app. WJFF Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Hmm. 